Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayera. He appeared. The address is Breshit Genesis chapter 18 verse 1 through chapter 22 verse 24. The reading date is for Shabbat and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. You'll have to excuse me for this particular podcast. I've got a cold and so if you hear me sniffling or or such in the background. Uh, you know, one thing about these podcasts is um, you can't hide it when you're sick versus the written commentary. You guys can't tell when I was sick over all the years that I've been putting out the written commentary, but suddenly, now with this audio version, you can tell right away when I'm sick, so please uh, forgive me. The written commentary was updated on November 5th of 2006. All quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible, translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachar Banu Mikol HaAmim Vanatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Last week I dealt extensively with Christian attitudes toward the offspring of our main parasha figure, who of course was Avraham. I think it's imperative that we approach Avraham and his physical offspring, that is to say, the Jewish side of them, the Jewish people, from the right perspective. You know, the Torah leaves no room for pride and arrogance on the part of the, how shall we say, quote-unquote, grafted-in branches. I want you to read Romans chapter 11 carefully, and keep that portion at hand as we journey through the Torah, reading about your father, Avraham. By the way, the careful reader will also notice that most of what was said concerning negative attitudes towards the progeny of Avraham extends equally unto the Torah true Christian. You see, genuine believers are also legitimate heirs to salvation via Yeshua, and of course via our common Father. I believe anyone, Jew, Gentile, or otherwise, who carries a negative view, a negative view of Gentile, uh, that is to say genuine Christian believers, um, anyone who holds this particular view just might find themselves guilty of the same kind of anti-Jewish, red here, anti-Christian hatred that we discussed earlier. Remember last week's study, we talked about the Hebrew word kalal, how that it refers to thinking of others in a, say, less than positive 
attitude so that when we despise others, the Hebrew word kalal um, fits that description of, de- of, of a despising and or a placing in a less than favored um, position so that when we just kind of marginalized one another, uh, such as the Jewish people uh, have, have or the Christians in the, Ju- the the church and the synagogue have done towards each other down to the centuries, then I don't believe the Torah um, teaches us that we should do so. In other words, we should not be that way. We need to extend love towards one another. In fact, let, let's face it, folks. Historically, the world has had no profound love for the Jewish people. That's just the way it is. What is more, the world has expressed no great love for genuine Christians either, all of whom are indeed grafted into a Jewish olive tree. Genuine Christians are grafted into a Jewish olive tree. We true believers must stand together, united under the banner of love, under the banner of our leader, Yeshua the Messiah, of both faithful Jews and Christians alike. This week's portion... Parashat Vayara, like so many other portions, gains its name, Vayara, from the opening few Hebrew words. I won't read them for you this time. Our portion last week left off with Hashem changing our main figure's name from Avram, which meant exalted father, to Avraham, father of many nations. We notice by adding the covenantal letter H, which, by the way, is one of God's sacred letters, yod heh vav that God forever fixed Avram's destiny to become the root, there's Romans 11 again for you, the root of the righteous heirs that would faithfully follow in his footsteps. Heirs that obey God and trusted him for the promise of blessing and inheritance. During this exchange, we also noticed that his wife Sarai took on the, covenant, the uh, covenantal letter H as well. So her name was changed to Sarah. Um, she's to be remembered as the mother who laughed when God promised her a child. In fact, the name Yitzchak, uh, the English version is Isaac, comes from the root word, the root Hebrew word for laughter. This laughter can be interpreted in two ways, either joyous laughter at the good news, or doubtful laughter at the thought of the impossible. And as we read the Torah, it's likely that it was the latter there. For more on this subject, go ahead and read last week's parasha again. Sarah is like so many of us today, in my opinion. How so? When we hear of the miraculous, sometimes we react in doubt. In fact, often we react in doubt. We want so much to experience the supernatural that when it finally happens, we simply cannot believe it. In fact, when I was putting the study together, I was reminded of a story in the Apostolic Scriptures in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 6 through 17, when the Talmudim, the disciples, were gathered together, presumably praying for the release of Kepha, that is Peter, from prison. And if you recall, the angel of the Lord supernaturally did release Peter from prison. And after he was released, he made his way to the door of the place where the other disciples were praying. And what ended up happening was he knocks on the door to be let in, and the maid who answers the door was so excited that she forgot to let him in. She just sees him and, ah, she runs away. Instead, she runs away and tells the other disciples, hey, Peter's here, Peter's here. And upon hearing her report, what's the reaction? You read it there. They just couldn't believe that it was really him. See how it is? When they finally open the door to find Kiva standing there, they are amazed. And so I have to scratch my head and wonder, why are we so amazed at the miraculous? After all, we serve a miraculous God, don't we? 
The Torah teaches us that there is nothing too hard for Adonai. And so the promised son was born, and the tests for Avram, um, sorry, for Avraham and his family really had just begun. The opening dialogue picks up presumably right after Avraham had his entire male household circumcised, which is uh, chapter 17. Over and against the supernatural signs, I'd like to say something about a rather down-to-earth sign this time, okay? Let's talk about circumcision. This particular paragraph is entitled Brit Milah. The literal meaning of the term Brit Milah implies covenant pertaining to circumcision. In fact, if we break it down, the Hebrew word Brit means covenant, alliance, or pledge, and that's according to Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, the BDB. While the Hebrew word Milah stems from the root word mul, which according to BDB means to circumcise, to let oneself be circumcised, to cut or to be cut off. Why does Judaism refer to circumcision as a covenant, you may ask? Well, if we look back at the Torah, um, Genesis 17 verse 11, the verse clearly reads, I'm going to read out of KJV here, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt you and me. Again, that's chapter 17, verse 11. Likewise, the uh, portion also adds in, in verse 13, just two verses later, He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Again, Genesis 17.13, also from the KJV. So we see that in both verses, both Pesukim, that the phrase covenant and circumcision are used together. I believe that this act, that is to say circumcision, betrays the Torah's intentions to speak to the male about his responsibilities, his covenant responsibilities, in helping to bring about the truth that Hashem, and Hashem alone, can bring the previously mentioned promises of Avraham to come to pass. So, with that as our intro, let's examine the details. As I study through history and through the pages of the Torah, I come to find that covenants usually involved at least two parties. Likewise, there was usually a sign of the covenant being established. Um... This sign, according to ancient Middle Eastern writings, was usually something that either party could carry on their person, such as a stone or other small object. And in fact, this sign, when viewed by either individual, served as a reminder that the two parties were under obligation to fulfill their parts of the covenant. In fact, individual-wise, it also assured one party over against the other that each was under the same obligations. I'm obligated to keep my part of the covenant as I view the covenant sign. You two are also under the same obligations. It's kind of like the wedding ring. As, uh, as, the, as the husband wears his ring and he glances down at it, he reminds himself that he is under obligation to keep his part of the covenant that he's made with his spouse. Likewise, the wife, when she views the covenant ring, or the, 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 the wedding ring, she's reminded that she's under covenant obligation uh, to her husband. So, uh, as pertains to circumcision, what I find as I do my research is that removal of the foreskin of the male sex organ was not exclusively Hebrew, 
as surprising as it might uh, be. In fact, the ancient Egyptians had been doing it for some time as well. Uh, when we pick up the narrative of Avraham being told to circumcise, it's helpful to know that he's not the first one that's being that, that, that had practiced this particular act. In fact, when I went online to Wikipedia, their article, um, they have an article that claims, quote, the tomb of Ankh-Mahor of the 6th dynasty um, has a detailed rendering of a ceremonial circumcision. I thought that was quite interesting. And then I went on to read their extended article on circumcision, and here's what they have to say. Again, this is um, Wikipedia. Quote, The oldest documentary evidence for circumcision comes from Egypt. Tomb artwork from the 6th dynasty, that is to say from uh, 2345 B.C. to 2181 B.C., this particular um, artwork shows men with circumcised penises, and one relief from this period actually shows the rite being performed on a standing adult male. The article goes on to say that the Egyptian hieroglyph for penis itself depicts either a circumcised or an erect organ. The examination of Egyptian mummies has also found both circumcised and uncircumcised men. Again, the article continuing... Circumcision was common, although not universal, among ancient Semitic peoples. In fact, the book of Jeremiah, written in the 6th century BC, lists the Egyptians, the Jews, the Edomites, the uh, the Ammonites, and the Moabites as circumcising people. In fact, um, Herodotus, writing in the 5th century BC, would add the Colchians, the Ethiopians, the Phoenicians, and the Syrians to that list. The article continues by saying, except in the portrayal of the uh, satires, the lectures, and the barbarians, ancient ancient Greek artwork that is portrayed penises covered by foreskins. In the aftermath of Alexander the 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 Great's conquests, Greek dislike of the circumcised penis led to a decline in the incident of circumcision, uh, the incidents, I should say, of circumcision among many peoples that had previously practiced it. The writer of 1st Maccabees wrote that during the Seleucid Empire, many Jewish men were attempting to hide or reverse their circumcision. I think we call that, um, I forgot what the technical term is for that when you try to reverse the circumcision. At any rate, the, the article concludes by saying that they uh, tried to reverse their circumcision so that they could exercise in the Greek gymnasiums. It also adds that cult- cultural pressures to circumcise uh, people operated throughout the Hellenistic world. When the Judean king John Hyrcanus conquered the Idumeans, he forced them to be circumcised and to convert to Judaism. But their ancestors, the Edomites, had practiced circumcision in the pre-Hellenistic times. That's the end quote from the Wikipedia. Looking through other resources besides Wikipedia, I found that the Jewish Publication Society, on their Torah commentary to Genesis, in an excursus on the back to circumcision, That's in Excursus number 12, page 385. They also corroborate the information provided by Wikipedia, citing various quotations from Herodotus uh, from his histories, 2 verse 37 and 2 verse 104. So, 
you have to stop and think. When Hashem asked, in fact, he commanded Avraham to participate in this rather, what you might say, lopsided covenant. I say lopsided because if you remember, Avraham did not earn his position before God. It was not, I'm sorry, it was in fact graciously granted to him. And you can read Romans 11.6 for the proof. So it's rather lopsided in the sense that it is a um, unilateral covenant. Abraham is just the recipient, whereas God is doing all the, the blessing. But when Avraham was asked to participate, our father did not hesitate to become obedient to the command, in fact, of circumcising himself as well as all the males of his household. However, at this point in time, you might be asking a very, very important question. This particular section is entitled, Ouch Factor, Why the Male Reproductive Organ? So, let's ask the question. Why did God have Avraham circumcised in the first place? Why did he have him remove the foreskin of his penis in the first place? Have you ever stopped to ponder this enigmatic question? After all, I don't think God is capricious. I mean, he's not given over to, to just uh, uh, flimsy and, 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 and unjustified whims. He, he could have easily had our father remove the skin of his ear or his finger or some other body part. We really have to stop and scratch our heads and ask, why the male sex organ? Well, let me do some more uh, uh, quotations from another well-known author. Tim Haig of First Fruits of Zion, FFOZ Notoriety, has been, in my opinion, spearheading the movement to bring about a more accurate view of Paul and the Judaisms that he had to confront in the first century by publishing essential books and papers for Christians to carefully examine. So, with that, I wish to quote from one of his works here in my paper to show the messianic implications of God asking Avraham to circumcise himself exactly where he eventually ended up circumcising himself. So we're going to try and ask the question or figure out why there. As of November 15th last year, 2005, Hegg's entire online article that I'm about to quote from was available at his website at this particular source. It was at www.torahresource.com slash English. And then there's an article called Circumcision. Um, actually, if you just go to torahresource.com and click on the English articles and scroll down, you can see them alphabetized uh, by uh, topic and just click on Circumcision there. So, let's make our quote. Referring, referring to the Genesis text, here's what Tim Hegg writes. Quote, Chapter 16 opens with an exposition and complication. Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. If the former narrative settled the question of God's full intention to give offspring, this unit questions the method by which the promise would be fulfilled. Abram follows the advice of his wife and takes Hagar as a second wife. The reader is aware immediately, however, that, that rather than solving the problem, the action of Abram and Sarai has introduced complication into the story. Tim Haig goes on to say that the story continues with the appearance of yod heh to Abram, signaling resolution, reassuring him of the continuation and maintenance of the covenant, the issue of the promised offspring, the main subject of chapters 15 and 16, continues in this particular section. Regarding the etymological meaning of the change from Abram to Abraham, the narrative is clear that yod heh is installed 
Abraham as a father of the nations. Thus, chapter 17 gives the divine solution to the problem addressed in chapter 16, namely, the realization of the promise regarding the seed. The divine speech to Abraham in chapter 17, verse 1 through 5, is taken up exclusively with the promise of offspring. Tim Hegg goes on to say, quote, The introduction of circumcision continues this theme. The promise of offspring has been established, but the method or manner by which the offspring would be realized is now made clear. In the same way that the complications surrounding the promise of land and blessing were resolved by direct divine intervention, so too the promised offspring would come by divine fiat. Human enterprise and strength would not be the means by which God would fulfill his promise to Abraham regarding the seed. Circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin, revealed this explicitly. Coming on the heels of God's renewed promise to Abraham regarding his progeny and his installation as a father of a multitude of nations, the sign of circumcision upon the organ of procreation must be interpreted within the narrative flow as relating to the method by which the complication, that is the absence of children in the age of both Abraham and Sarah, would be resolved. The promise would come not by the strength of the flesh, which the Hagar plan represented, but rather by above human means. He, he, he uh, continues by saying, quote, If circumcision were a sign given to Abraham which pointed specifically to the need for faith in regard to the coming seed, it is valid to ask whether or not the other Old Testament authors also attached this meaning to the ritual. Interestingly, he says, the two times circumcision is used in a metaphorical sense in the Pentateuch, the references to Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the immediate context is that of Abrahamic covenant. In Deuteronomy 10.12, the unit begins by an exhortation to, quote, revere the Lord your God, to walk only by his paths, end quote, which is very close to Genesis 17.1, which reads, quote, walk before me and be blameless, end quote. Further, in Deuteronomy 10.15, the covenant love of yod heh for the fathers becomes the basis for the exhortation to cut away the thickening about your hearts. That is, if the promises made to the fathers should be realized, of course the fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if this should be realized, it will be so only as each Israelite relates to yod heh on the basis of faith. The heart which relies on the flesh, that is, foreign powers, self-strength, etc., this heart will fail. Rather, the fleshly heart must be cut away and discarded. End quote. In reference to the circumcision and the apostolic scriptures, I noticed that Hegg makes these pertinent remarks in the same article. So let me pick up the quote again. In the same article, quote, what, um, what brings Paul to use Abraham in his exposition here is the central promise of the covenant that, quote, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, end quote. Paul's argument is that this promise was given to Abraham before 
circumcision, and that therefore Abraham may rightly be considered the father of all who participate in the same faith, whether circumcised or not. In fact, the promise that Abraham would be a, quote, father of nations is applied more precisely by the apostle in the phrase, father of all who believe, end quote. Tim Haig goes on to notice, Paul's uh, Paul's argument, while given to prove another point, still confirms what I have previously maintained about circumcision. That is, the ritual did not bring something new to the covenant, but rather reinforced righteousness on the basis of faith, which is the very hallmark of the covenant from the beginning. Circumcision required Abraham to continue in the faith that had brought him from Ur, and to direct his faith toward the God who had promised to bring a son by divine intervention. It is on this basis um, it is on this basis that Paul in Galatians four twenty three refers to Ishmael as quote according to flesh and Isaac as quote through promise. Tim Haig goes on to quote Paul has shown that a primary function of law was to point to Christ the references to Galatians 3.24. And it therefore stands to reason that circumcision has fulfilled its function. For Christ the promised seed has come. Israel, worshipping the sign rather than the seed to which it pointed, has attributed to circumcision what only God's Son could accomplish. This, Paul plainly asserts in his statement that, quote, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love, end quote. So, what are we to make of of Hegg's statement? Let me draw some conclusions from what we just read. His article states, number one, quote, The narrative structure of Genesis 12-17 through would indicate that circumcision is given as a sign of divine intervention to resolve a complication. The complication is Abraham's attempt to gain the promised offspring through fleshly means. The divine intervention is the promise of seed by divine fiat. Circumcision pictures this by the casting away of the flesh of the organ of procreation. In this way, faith in El Shaddai, the giver of offspring, continues to be the hallmark of the covenant. And number two, the article uh, concludes by saying that interpreting circumcision as meaning that God and God alone could bring the promised seed and thus requiring faith is in harmony with with the general uh, the general posture of unconditional covenants in the ancient Near East. For in such covenants, the loyalty of the vassal to the suzerain was expected to be maintained. In circumcision, God requires, the Ab- um, God requires of Abraham the same life of faith in which he obeyed God previously, only this time specifically regarding the promised offspring." End quote. You know, after reading the article by Tim Haig and and summarizing and really just kind of soaking in the data that was given and uh, collating that with what we read in the Torah, I'm I'm just amazed that even at such an old age that Abraham didn't question God's reasons behind this somewhat strange covenantal sign. I mean, we're putting it together with the help of the Holy Spirit, you know, 2,000 years, 3,000 3,500 years later or so. And yet I wonder if Abraham was getting it right then when God told him, circumcise yourself uh, because of what you've done in the flesh. So in my opinion, because circumcision itself is the sign of the covenant made between Abraham and God, 
I'm not ashamed to state that to neglect circumcision, that is Brit Milah, is to neglect the chosen sign of the covenant, and consequently, it stands to reason that it's rejection of the covenant itself. That's my opinion. Rejection of the sign is rejection of the covenant. After all, if we carry that example back over to my wedding ring analogy, if I were to say to my wife, forget this wedding ring, I don't want to wear it, and I were to reject the wedding ring, aren't I in fact rejecting the marriage covenant between my wife and myself? That's kind of the way I see it. But circumcision was to become a unique marker, outwardly identifying those males of the offspring of Avraham as inheritors of the magnificent promises that Hashem was making with this man. We must, we must, we must remind ourselves that circumcision itself does not serve to secure those promises through personal effort. It wasn't that Abraham circumcised himself and because of that, he became the recipient of the promises. So, circumcision is a sign of Abraham's faith. What's more, the sign of circumcision was to be an indicator that the participant, the males, were adopting the same faith that Abraham possessed in uh, in what, what we call uh, imitation of Abraham. Just like Abraham was circumcised, so we males also circumcise ourselves, or we become circumcised at eight days old. The promises were of faith, and we remind ourselves that that's what Romans chapter 4 teaches us. Abraham was a righteous individual because of his faith that he placed in the promised word of Hashem. To be 100% sure, the Torah says that the promises were given to him before he was circumcised. We've got to get that fact down in our head. This is why, after Hashem promised that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, Avraham was credited with being righteous. Remember last week when we talked about credited to him as righteousness? Go back and read last week's parasha or download the podcast and you'll catch that teaching. Avraham was credited with being righteous. Why? Because he believed the unbelievable. He had faith. 